welcome to episode 520 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. Just Adam today, uh, super jazzed. This is going to be a really fun interview that I think you guys are going to enjoy. Uh, I spoke with Rose Zabo, who is the author of What Big Teeth. Uh, this book, I got a copy of it before the new year and was so excited to dive into it. and It, it did not disappoint. Uh, it is equal parts werewolf and creepy family and gothic house and um, just between like the haunted setting and all of the tension because of these different characters who are dealing with a family drama while also happening to be werewolves. Uh, it's just such a it's weird, it's weird to call a really dark book fun, but it is such a fun book. Uh, and this conversation with Rose was a blast. Uh, I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. If you if you read Wilder Girls, I think you'll really, really like this book. Uh, also, the cover of the book, just, <laughs> it is very uh, attention-grabbing. Um, so, yeah, I think you're just going to love it. I, I don't know. I, I, I've loved this book so much. It's so fun. And it's just one of those books where I couldn't put it down. Um, you get these little snippets of the, the family members um, and they're the creepy things that they're doing. And you just want to keep going and going and going. So uh, excited for you to hear that. A few things I want to just bring up before we get to the actual conversation. Uh, one, if you missed our episode on Thursday, I recommend going back and taking a listen to that. Uh, Jill did an interview with... Um, an author who is a part of our Together We Read program. So she interviewed uh, Kate Claiborne, who wrote Love Lettering. And if you're one of our listeners in the United States, you can take uh, you can take part in our Together We Read digital book club. I can go to togetherweread.com to get more information. But basically, it's a lot like our big library read program that we've been talking about over the past couple years. Uh, from February 10th to February 24th. You can borrow Love Lettering on Libby or however you access your Overdrive books um, for free with no wait lists or holds. And then you can join our discussion boards at togetherweread.com. So uh, it was a really great conversation. If you're a romance fan, I'd definitely go back and listen to that interview with Kate about Love Lettering. It's good stuff. Um, Also, per your many, many, many requests, uh, Jill and I are going to be doing an episode on Thursday about the books we didn't love for whatever reason, uh, we, of course, will be respectful about it. Um, but I uh, would love to hear uh, about the books that you didn't love and why. Um, we're, of course, we're going to be, you know, we're going to explain our reasoning. And just because we don't happen to love a book um, doesn't mean it isn't a good or wonderful book. Um, but the amount of people that said you wanted to hear about that uh, was overwhelming. So we will be doing that for you guys. Uh, if you want to leave us a review in iTunes, uh, Spotify, or anywhere you happen to listen to podcasts, uh, we very much appreciate that. It helps people find us a little bit more easily. Um, but yeah, we have a lot of fun things coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, you guys have reached out and told us about different types of episodes you want to hear, which is exciting. So we're going to put a lot of those together for you. Um, if you want to reach us, again, tweet, Instagram, all that good stuff, at ProBookNerds. Or you can go to ProfessionalBookNerds.com. That's our website. Uh, and you can find all of our podcast episodes ever, and you can search for anyone that you want to hear us talk to uh, if you happen to be brand new. Okay, that's just about everything. Not going to keep any more. Uh, I am excited for you to hear this conversation with Rose Zabo on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Is I can actually just start out by having you maybe introduce What Big Teeth to our listeners who are maybe unfamiliar with it for now. Sure. 
Um, so what Big Teeth is um, about a girl named Eleanor who has been away at boarding school um, and she has been away for long enough that she's sort of hazy on who or what her family is. Mm -hmm. um, but when she has this, um, she has a, a fight with another student at the school who pushes her down the stairs and flees the fight um, in search of her family. Um, but when she gets there, uh, they are not exactly as she remembered. Um, and a major factor in that is that they're werewolves. <laughs> um, you know, a little bit of a thing to, to sort of gloss bit. over. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that this is fundamentally a story about the ways that when um, you come back to your family as a young adult, um, you know, whether you've been at college or just have been exposed to more of the world, your family starts to seem really alien to you. Mm -hmm. um, and the ways that you start to notice that you differentiate from your family, um, but also um, realizing that you share some things with them that you can't necessarily let go of just because they make you uncomfortable. Yeah, there's definitely that like first time you come home from college like especially or like if it's a boarding school in Eleanor's mm -hmm. case it's so true like I mean you're usually 18 19 however old you are and you immediately start to realize the differences with these people that you've lived with all your life and you're like now hold on we there's I'm not I guess I never knew this because I was so in your circle but exactly what you said like the I love the aspect of taking a fantastical thing like werewolves and kind of implementing that so what made you want to write a story about werewolves in general? Mm. Um, I mean, I've always really liked werewolves, um, you know, on the sort of, uh, I didn't get into Twilight, uh, you know, although, you know, no, sh no shade on Twilight. <laughs> um, but on the teen vampire werewolf spectrum, I feel like I always felt more akin to werewolves. I didn't mm -hmm. necessarily like them as much. I thought vampires were very sexy. Mm -hmm. um, but but I understood like feeling uh, feeling like a werewolf, um, feeling like there's um, um, like you are in a very bad person disguise and at any moment you might become something else, uh -huh. um, whether you want to or not. Um, I also grew up around a lot of dogs. Um, my family was big into dogs. I think my parents currently have like four or maybe five dogs. I haven't gone home to check. I'm a little worried. <laughs> um, and one of the things about that is that it's this very raucous way of living. Like you were never fully at rest in a house with that many dogs. There's this sort of constantly circulating mm -hmm. energy. Um, and so when I went to write a story about a family, my first thought was like, ah, oh, that kind of can't sit down. Um, there's there's nowhere to put anything because there is mm -hmm. a dog there. <laughs> um, you know, every meal is a disaster. The yeah, like the the kind of chaos that werewolves embody felt very um, familiar to me. That is. Just, okay. oh, sorry, oh, go ahead. ahead. Sorry. I, I also just think the werewolf lore is really cool. Um, you know, they're sort of like associated with witches, but also with mental illnesses of various kinds in the past. Um, and there is this one belief that I just found so fascinating when I heard it for the first time, which is that um, the werewolf's wolf skin was on the underside of the person's skin. Mm -hmm. um, and that image really just stuck with me. The idea that um, that any person could be a werewolf, you just have to figure out like how to turn them inside out. Or if you are the werewolf, how to turn yourself inside out. Yeah. 
Well, and, and something that I, I really love that you've done with your book is I feel like a lot of the werewolf stories, at least the ones that I read, the werewolves, uh, like the a big aspect of the plot is them becoming a werewolf. It's it's a strange, it's almost like a coming of age thing in werewolf stories. Whereas yours, especially with Eleanor's family, like it is established that they are they're already werewolves like they they it's not you know like her grandfather tells a story about the first time he became a werewolf but like his her siblings and cousins it's a step like they're werewolves they're not like wrestling with coming to terms with this thing that's inside of like they seem very comfortable a lot of the times with that like what made you want to start from from that kind of jumping off point as opposed to it being about sort of like the origins of them as werewolves? Um, I mean, so on the one hand, I think I wanted to make it very mundane because people have seen so many werewolf transformations in media, mm -hmm. um, you know, and those take up all of this, this screen time. But the great thing about writing in an existing canon is that you can um, sort of use people's genre expectations to handle stuff that you don't necessarily want to go into depth in so that you can um, move on to other things. I feel like where you place your your elaborate descriptions um, is where the story finds its emphasis. And I, so I liked the idea of, of being able to use people's knowledge of the genre to like start with that as a baseline. Mm -hmm. um, and I also liked the idea of um, of thinking more about like the ways that they live strategically around being werewolves than the transformation itself. Mm -hmm. um, like the idea that people are always just like leaving piles of clothes in the hall when they uh, change for shape and someone's got to come along and pick them up. Um, and then I guess like there's also something about um, words are great but they can only do so much. And so the monster transformation that somebody can imagine is always mm -hmm. going to look infinitely cooler than anything that I could physically describe. That's so interesting because you, know, you before the recording, you, you mentioned a, a episode we did recently uh, with PJ Clark. And we were talking about how like the difference between showing someone a thing and even uh, and writing out like a description of something, it lets you kind of play with it in your mind. But to your point, it's a, it's almost more powerful if you are reading a book and, and you know something that is happening. Like you said, like I could think of them. I, I had like, I almost, I found myself visualizing each character in a different transformation depending on who it was. And that is, that's, it's not even like show or tell. It's like, it's, it's don't tell and let the, like, it's, I like that trust in your reader of saying like, you'll figure this out for yourself. I believe in you. <laughs> Yeah, um, I very much doubt that I'm going to be most readers' first YA werewolf book. That's fair, yeah. <laughs> and so I can really like rely on their on their expertise and their cinematography. <laughs> um, I believe I saw in a previous uh, interview you did that some of the unique characters in this family are sort of based on like, there's some maybe tall tales in your own family is this is this true I, i'm like i know oh. i'm like kind of leading the witness here <laughs> no i mean i i think um like it's it's sort of that the way that we always tell stories in my family is very much about um um making something funny 
mm. or making something, um, you know, cinematic or a good story rather than necessarily um, lingering on the, uh, the emotional truth or the implications. So um, this is no secret. Like, I don't think I'm, um, you know, going to get sued by anyone in my family. My great aunt um, shot her husband and then set him on fire. Mm-hmm. Um, she's already done the time for it. Uh, they sort of, they gave her five years of kind of a sentence. Um, and that's horrible. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's terrible that it got, that her relationship got to the point where that happened mm-hmm. and um, that that was the only way out that she had. Um, but in our family, we love to tell the story with like as many details that make her this sort of, um, this sort of like hero as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and I do support her decision. Like, you know, shoot that guy, set him on fire. I don't care. <laughs> um, but we were telling the story to my brother who had never heard it for, um, for the first time. And each one of us um, had to take our turn at the ending of going, and that's not all. She got his military pension. And that's not all. They didn't even make her spend the night in jail because it was an all men's jail. And they didn't like the idea of a lady being in there. And then I got to do the, and that's not all. I saw that she still keeps a picture of him in her wallet. Oh my gosh. But like, that's the way that we like to tell these stories because I think otherwise they're too, um, they're too sad. Mm -hmm. And I sort of admire that, but I also want to push back against it and say like, no, it's okay to actually talk about how, how this was also, you know, a really traumatic thing that happened. Well, and and I think, all right, because we... I don't have anything quite that fanciful in our family, if you want to call it that, which is probably not the best, you know, descriptor. But um, I mean, we do do the same thing when it comes to like tragedy. Like, I feel like there are families who lean into it. And like we do, we are a a big emotions family, but one of the big emotions is comedy. And it's like Mm -hmm. we sit through things that are challenging and we have to make jokes. And like if anyone was not a part of our family while hearing these jokes they'd probably be like are you kidding me that is wildly inappropriate but it's like it's part of a process it's how you you know it's sometimes how you grieve or how you just kind of explain a thing that is that unique I suppose yeah it um it starts to take on a life of its own like there's the thing that actually happened to the person and then there's the story, which at some point sort of belongs to everybody and gets to take on whatever shade it needs to to, um, mm-hmm. to serve its purpose in that particular moment. I want to take a quick break to talk about today's sponsor, which is Tommy John, which is perfect in time for Valentine's Day. Um, listen, I talked about this last time I was talking about Tommy John's, but the most important thing from a clothing standpoint over the past year for me has been to be comfortable uh, working from home and not even remembering what day it is most days. It's just important that I can wake up in the morning and put on something ludicrously comfortable. And Tommy John's underwear and clothes and loungewear is exactly that. Um, I guess I didn't even realize how much I needed comfortable like joggers and, and t-shirts and Henleys um, until we started partnering with Tommy John and now I, I can't go back. Um, literally every part of me right now is uh, Tommy John's from the parts that are touching my skin, <laughs> my underwear, my joggers, my t-shirt, and uh, actually <laughs> my overshirt too. Literally all of them 
our Tommy Johns, they have um, what they call like second skin clothes. Um, so if you go on their website, it'll be second skin V-neck or like second skin pajama tops. And it's just so freaking comfortable. Um, highly recommend it if you haven't checked out these products yet. Um, it's just, you want to be comfortable, you know, you, you want to enjoy what you're wearing, especially if you are working from home or if you're never really leaving your house on the weekends like I am. It's just perfect. And again, with Valentine's Day coming up, it's the perfect time to buy the men or women in your life something from Tommy John. Because again, whether uh, you are in a relationship where you buy each other underwear, perfect. If not, grab them some pajama pants and some loungewear and you're going to be an absolute hero. For a limited time, you can go to tommyjohn.com slash pbn to get $20 off site-wide, including limited edition Valentine gift sets. Go right now. Last year, they sold out in just five days, so don't wait. Get $20 off site-wide if you go to tommyjohn.com slash pbn. Plus, you'll get free shipping as well. One more time, tommyjohn.com slash pbn. See site for details. So when it comes to writing fantastical characters then and you know people like Grandpa Mikos and like their 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 stories, I imagine it didn't feel too hard. Like I probably at, at certain times it maybe you felt like you almost weren't going far enough with like the outrageous aspects of their story, or or did you think you're I'm just having that type of a story in your family, like I imagine it made an easy transition to write about this particular family. Yeah. Um, like with Miklos at one point, he he's refusing to tell the story of how he became a werewolf at first because he thinks it's too sad, too scary for children, despite the fact that, you know, he'll just uh, turn into a wolf at dinner to frighten people because <laughs> exactly. it's funny. Um, but he will tell this story about, um, you know, um, murdering a guy in an alley and stealing his pocket watch. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the... Um, that that sort of character of um, of like you always have to tell the story in which you're sort of a uh, like a picaresque hero like mm-hmm. it always has to come come at it from that angle. Um, yeah, so I had a lot of fun trying to come up with like what a werewolf mythology in a family would be like yeah. how they would talk about it. So with this family, there are so many characters who have it looks it feels like they're telling. Not telling. It feels like they are definitely having their own story. We just happen to be with Eleanor's point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's Reese. Is it Reese? Her Reese, yes. okay, yeah. You know, there's Reese and the grandpa, and even like her mother and her grandma. There's there's all different different characters who they all seem to have something going on. Mm-hmm. What made you want to tell the story through one point of view, and then kind of maybe how does that help keep the mystery going throughout the book? So really what it came down to is um, I was initially conceiving of this this story and not really knowing what form it was going to take. And it got so big and sprawling in my head. Um, Like I had family trees, I had drawings, I had lots of little bits of material. Um, Oh, the pup's away. His dog just shook his little head. Yeah, he's here. Oh, you're okay, go ahead. so when I, I realized at some point that I was never going to write it unless I picked a direction and mm-hmm. let myself gain some actual velocity in that direction. 
Um, and so I picked Eleanor because she was the person who was the most outside of the family. Um, in this early little drawing that I did, she's in like a top corner, just like looking at everyone else with fear and dismay in her eyes. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really like her very much. Um, but I thought that's somebody who, who will be able to tell us stuff because she is seeing the family from the outside. Um, and eventually, you know, as it goes, I realized that I didn't like her because she reminded me of myself, always sort of external to this swirling chaos werewolf family and trying to figure out what it meant to her and how she fit in um, and what, what kind of thing she was. Um, but originally the story actually had a lot more of her grandmother in it. It was almost alternating chapters between mm. Eleanor and her grandmother. Um, but um, my agent and my editor both pushed back against that and said, no, no, we want more Eleanor. And um, I think they were right. Did you, was it challenging to figure out ways to present the other characters' mysteries throughout with just one character? Or did you think that that maybe kept up that sort of air of like what's going on? Because I, I love the fact that throughout the story, because you're, you're seeing it through Eleanor's eyes, like you'll just get a character that just like jumps out of a closet and then runs off and you like they're having their own little adventure and you're like I don't okay well I what's going on like did it did was it challenging to find ways to kind of keep everyone's story like to insert characters into certain scenes like oh I need to make sure that um you know this particular character is unveiling more threads of their aspects like was it challenging or did you think that that was kind of really helped you keep the story going I think that having, I think that it's probably more the latter, that mm -hmm. having that many, having characters that behave almost autonomously. Um, I know that, you know, they are a construct, they're not real somewhere, but having them have um, ways that they behave and things that they want, um, independent of Eleanor's story and her arc, meant that there was always something for them to be doing. Mm -hmm. um, and that was exciting. Um, I get really stressed out when I think I know what's going to happen in a story um, when there are no mysteries left for me. Mm -hmm. And so for as long as I can, when I'm writing, like even into second and third drafts, I try and keep up as much of a sense of, I don't know everything. I might write a sentence and then go, what did I just write? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, having, having this like massive cast of characters who all want things that are contrary to what she wants made it really easy for conflict to just happen. Mm -hmm. It's almost like when you play a, a, an open world video game. And like I used to yes. be obsessed with, um, I don't know if you've ever played the Fable games, but- I have not, but okay. I am familiar. Yeah, okay. So it's just basically for people who aren't familiar, Fable, it's like a, it's an open world game and all of the NPCs, you know, non-playable characters, they have their own, I mean, it's all AI, but they have their own like wants and journeys that they're going on. So you can interact with them at any given point and they're doing something totally different based on wherever they're at in their own world. And like, I imagine the writing, like that's, that, that's what this feels like to me is how, like, I, I wanted more of, of what everyone was doing, but also I appreciate it. I'm like, oh, this is such a wonderful way um, to keep everything going. And, and like you said, it really shines through because I'm like you, I hate when I'm reading a book and like it starts off with like, Oh wow, this world is so interesting. 
I I don't know what's going on. And then like when you do figure out the mysteries, it's like there's you know no more worlds to conquer or whatever it is. It's like mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like that in your book because like and I I think like you said part of that is because you didn't know where you were going entirely until everything was was put together. That's interesting. Yeah, um, I actually teach a class on world building sometimes. And one of the mm-hmm. things that we talk about a lot is how video games are, at least very good video games handle this very well. Um, there's this video that I like to show people called um, Shandification, mm-hmm. which is basically about the idea that um, in an ideal video game, what's happening is um, there's no A, B, C, D plot that must be followed one after the other after the other. Instead, there are many different branching paths that could all hypothetically lead to D, maybe eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, and they named it after like the book Tristram Shandy, which wanders all over the place and never gets to the end. Yep. Um, and it's hard to create that feeling in what is supposed to be a linear narrative, but that's what I definitely try to aim for is the sense that there's, um, that I've, slapped a frame on this but there's a much larger world on every side of the frame speaking of that that larger world you know there's i think of this as a a gothic story Mm -hmm. which i love the setting of like a gothic story and like is it appalachia is that kind of where they're at or am i thinking about this differently well uh the appalachian trail does end in maine but i was thinking this is um um like coastal Maine um there's all these like little tiny towns that just sort of like wind along the coastline and um a lot of the time they follow the structure of like they've got like a little fishing village at the bottom of the hill and then like some rich people have built a summer house like on the top of the hill Mm -hmm. that's that's very kind of you that's not it's I would you can tell me it's not Appalachia that was very nice (laughs) of you but it's okay um but (laughs) but you know we're talking about putting a frame on this you know this the story and the characters what made you want to kind of pick this sort of like gothic house as the setting, which is very much to me, it feels a lot like a character with all the different rooms and hidden places. Like what made you want to create that type of a story and that type of a a setting? I mean, part of it is just, um, I feel like the house is such a compelling setting for horror. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll be honest, when I watch horror that takes place in like outer space, I'm like, I know what your problem is. You went to space. That was your first mistake. <laughs> I, an intellectual, would never go to space. <laughs> you know, it's so far outside of my experience. And, you know, this is probably a failure of imagination on my part. But I just go, you know, like, well, you're well, you're out there. Of course, things are, are strange and bad. Yeah. Um, but if you're in the home, um, you know, that's where that's where you go when you want to be safe. It's the place where you're supposed to be able to shut the door and nothing bad can happen to you because it's all out there and you're in here. Um, and I love when horror movies manage to really disturb that sense of feeling at peace in your home. Um, I feel like The Exorcist does a really good job of that mm. with, um, you know, like Reagan coming down the stairs when you think that she's safely locked in her room. Yeah. And suddenly anytime they're in another room, you're like, you're always wondering, is she about to come down the stairs? Mm-hmm. That's, I love that aspect. All I was thinking about when you're talking about you know, why did you go to space? I think about that um, <laughs> when I see horror movies that are set underwater. I'm like, well, I don't, I can't focus on the scary thing that's going on because the scary thing to me is that you're fathoms under the sea. Why would you go under there, you fools? This is, <laughs> there's, we weren't meant to be at the bottom of the ocean 
people in the abyss. I don't need like mm-hmm. yeah, I'm right there with you. Say I there are some like I like Alien, but mm-hmm. like Event Horizon and stuff. I'm just like yeah, I'm like yeah. Well, what did you expect? Nothing can go right out there. That's such that's such a good point. But I really do love the thought of there's a place that we all feel like we're safe and if you remove that safety everything feels very very dangerous even to the point where like Eleanor there's a number a number of scenes where she goes to her room to hide and like does the kind of you know puts a chair next to the door as if really that that's going to keep her safe and in reality like any one of her family members could have come in at any time it creates that jarring feeling I would imagine yeah um and I mean I think similarly people um you know you have this idea that you're safe with your family as well or Mm. that you're safe with your family when you know that they love you and want the best for you and I feel like that's also something that I wanted to um sort of destabilize here is um you know does loving someone and wanting the best for them necessarily mean that you can trust them or that you're safe with them what was something that you found really challenging about creating this story? I think not necessarily in terms of the writing, but emotionally. Um, I'll try not to spoil it, but there's a character who is much more subtly dangerous and sort of emotionally dangerous rather than physically. Um, and I found that really challenging to write because I was essentially trying to script emotional abuse mm. um, and thinking about um you know, what is this person going to say? How would they manipulate this particular scene or situation? How would they drive a wedge between two people who care about each other? Um, you know, it was like kind of um, kind of upsetting to write. Like a part of me was gleefully, you know, like a little demon just typing, okay, and then they're gonna do this and this and this. But um, getting into that, uh, getting into that mindset was definitely unsettling. Uh, you should put uh, "gleeful demon" as like your like Instagram like bio or something like that. I love that's fantastic. I love that so much. Writing a book, writing a horror story in a house and having the house be a character, but it not being, you know, a, a ghost story. Like, are there things that you have to do when putting like creating this scene of like a gothic story? feel like there are a lot of beats that people can find repetitively in these types of like Amityville horror type things where like the house is the the villain as well mm-hmm. are there things when and this is that's not what's happening here but like are there tropes or things that you tried to do to avoid like falling into that like you said removing the mysteries from from people like were there things that you thought you had to do to keep the mystery alive as people were going I mean, I think the main thing that um, that I ended up doing in subsequent drafts was um, removing more moments where you're sort of in somebody else's perspective or you're getting a clear view of the past. Mm. Um, and taking out that, uh, that perspective really helped to sort of uh, bolster the mystery. I do think that I have a tendency to like want to throw everything in and have everything be really visible. And I think what um, what good editing has done for me historically is, you know, to to pare back some of those things so that you can um, actually see more of the structure of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, um, 
I think uh, I had a quote that I uh, came up with in high school that um, they wouldn't run in the yearbook, which was being incomprehensible means never having to say you're sorry. <laughs> and so why would so you have that? That's so good. Because I wouldn't uh, take a, an official picture um, with them or with the other people. I think I submitted like an like a an incorrect picture. And so they wouldn't oh. run my picture or my quote. Uh-huh. It's fine, though. I'm not I'm not bitter. Yeah, clearly. Um, but, but, but I think like um, what what good editing has historically done for me is to help me be less kitchen sink, less um, here's just a cabinet of skulls that I found, and more like no, no, we're going to only have the skulls that like actually create a narrative, like a like a curation of the big junk pile that is, you know, my mind. I don't know why cabinet of skulls made me laugh so hard. That's fantastic. Oh, I love that so much. Um, so what are some like horror either uh, books or movies or just things that you think, um, I don't want to say inspire you, but just like that you find yourself enjoying as a reader? Um, I feel like uh, um, I just finished, uh, it's not out yet, but I just finished uh, S.T. Gibson's um, A Dowry of Blood, mm-hmm. which is just a beautiful Dracula story. I did not think that there was anything left to do with Dracula and they found something new to do with Dracula. So that was very exciting. Um, you, sorry not to cut you off. Did you, did you watch the, the Dracula? It was like a three part series. I think it was on Netflix. I did. I have strong opinions about that. If you want to get into them, we can talk about it because I also have strong <laughs> opinions. The, it was three, right? It was like three long. Yes, it, was, it was like three hour or hour and a half long blocks of yeah. I, okay. I, so the first episode, I was like, "This is golden. I am hooked." Yes. There, uh, a nun is asking uh, Jonathan Harker if he had sex with Dracula, just like point blank. Yeah. I'm like, I see. They want to play with the text, mm-hmm. and that whole first episode felt like them playing with the text. And then I don't know what happened in the other two episodes. It felt like uh, it felt like they just stopped writing it. It's like they had a different director or like creative had that's we are so there won't be much to talk about because we are so aligned with this because I remember watching it and being like that like you said that first episode I was like this is new and interesting and then like the way it ends and just ugh no oh, it you, got even in episode two I was kind of like maybe they'll pull this out somehow no mm-hmm. um no. I think the thing that really stuck with me about like the first episode was um you know, they usually portray Dracula as very like suave and debonair while he's being like kind of a, like while he's being a sexualized predator. Yeah. And in this, they were like, what if he was just a gross naked man who just erupted out of a werewolf and is now just menacing everybody naked? Like, I think they really managed to capture um, how like once you aren't afraid anymore, your reaction to that is actually closer to just disgust and bewilderment. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then they took a complete left turn right out of the enjoyment factor. And Yeah, I I don't know. Stephen Moffat just just gives and takes away. Yeah. Just as, as fast as he hands you something, he's like, no, never mind. I'll need that back. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I cut you off before because I wanted to talk about that. But what are, are there, were there some other ones that you were going to talk about before I so rudely made us talk about a disappointing Dracula? Oh, I, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, uh, I don't know. I feel like um, Angela Carter has fallen off the map a little bit. And I guess it's because she's dead. 
but um that's a, <laughs> I'm sorry no that's amazing but but um you know um I have like a little book of her short stories and they're so um they're such uh master classes about um time and perspective um she mm -hmm. has this story the fall river axe murders that takes place between the hours of, I think, 8 a.m. and 9 a.m. on the morning that Lizzie Borden is going to chop up her whole family with an ax. Oh, wow. And the whole thing is frozen in time and is just slowly progressing from, um, you know, like every little detail of where things are in the house um, to things that have happened recently in the family. But it never actually gets to the moment of violence. But because, you know, because you, the audience, already know about Lizzie Borden, mm -hmm. um, the entire scene feels like it's full of that sort of Hitchcockian tension. Was he the yeah. one who talked about the, how if there's a bomb under the table, the whole conversation takes on a different tone? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so it's this very sort of strange, but not scary story about, you know, a family's mourning on a particular normal morning mm -hmm. that you know is not going to be normal. And it's it's chilling, I love it. Yeah, wow, that, does, that sounds really, really good. Um, did you get a chance to read, I think it came out, in 2019 time has no meaning anymore so i don't really remember mm. but um there the trial of lizzie borden no so it is i don't know what i was expecting because it's literally called the trial of lizzie borden but it is basically to a t a trial of lizzie borden like i sent it i i, I have a friend who um actually the one who before we started recording shares your uh the spelling of your last name but not the pronunciation of your last name they are a uh an attorney and they are also a huge reader and i was like you will love this because it was all the like courtroom stuff it was almost like reading the manuscript like, like what actually happened in the j trial itself and i was like well this is it was dry i don't know how they made the trial of lizzie borden feel dry but I was very disappointed by it. It was like, give me more of the, the drama, the stuff that she actually did. But um, towards the end of a lot of our interviews, we like to ask the nerd nine, which is just our nine lighthearted. I used to call them rapid fire questions and people would yell at me because I would get sidetracked and they are not rapid fire at all. Um, right. But the first one is, what's the last book you finished reading? You might have just mentioned this. Yeah, that was uh, A Dowry of Blood and right before that, Wilder Girls. Ooh. Oh, wow. that's that's interesting, because I feel like this is going to get I feel like your book is going to get very kind of compared to Wilder Girls. That's interesting. Yeah, actually, um, I'm very excited. My um, debut as, is going to be um, a conversation with Rory Power. Oh, um, that's amazing. So I'm going to have to try to not fan out on her. <laughs> um, oh, that's fantastic. OK, so the next one is what is your favorite place to read? I think probably um, actually recently it's been at my desk. Like I got so tired of sitting on my bed, which used to be my desk before mm -hmm. quarantine. And now I'm like, if I'm, if I'm up and not sleeping, I want to be sitting at my desk. Sometimes I'll, you know, I'm, I'm bisexual. So I have to like prop my feet up above my head. But um, <laughs> you, you know, for those who are not on the internet, there's a meme that bisexuals cannot sit in chairs. Oh, that's so funny. Oh man. Yeah. But, um, you know, so, so I've become like a noir detective in quarantine. <laughs> like I'll prop my feet up on my desk and lean back in my office chair and read a book. <laughs> oh man. The amount of times I feel like I've had to like mute myself for this conversation. Oh, that's so funny. I'm laughing so hard. Okay. Do you remember the book that made you kind of fall in love with reading when you were younger? 
I'm sad to say it was uh, probably Harry Potter. That's a fair thing to be sad about. I told us I have some tattoos related to Harry Potter and oh, it is, I'm, I, yeah. I'm so sorry. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that I didn't, you know, get the Harry Potter tattoos. Um, but I probably read the first book uh, something like 20 times to the point mm. where my parents took it away from me. Um, and I got it back and hid it in a different book dust jacket so they would think I was reading something else. That is pretty fantastic. But I'm relieved to say there is a better wizard book that I read shortly thereafter. So you want to be a wizard, which like completely blew my mind and took over my imagination. So I've, I've got a second book, luckily. <laughs> um, when we're all allowed to leave our homes again, what is one place you'd like to travel to that you have not yet visited? Uh, um, I'm very excited. Um, me and my partner have been thinking about going to Spain for just the longest time. Um, I want to go to, uh, I want to go to Catalonia. I'm very excited. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Um, do you someday. have a, do someday, I know that's seriously at this point when I would go literally anywhere just to see a different home. Um, do you just have trade a houses with somebody? Yeah. just like do like the, what's that movie? The holiday is it mm -hmm. where they switch Christmas? Houses? I was just thinking about the holiday the other day. Cause it's got Jack Black in it. It does have Jack. I, there was. So cute something on twitter recently that was that's like probably why we're thinking about it uh -huh, i think someone was like um there's nothing chris pratt has ever done that jack black couldn't do better and i was like that was fantastic and someone like responded like jack black could play a chris pratt character but chris pratt could never be in in the holiday or something it was yes yeah. and people got so mad at her and i was like why are you booing her she's right yeah exactly <laughs> don't don't get mad because jack black is an Amer as america's sweetheart come on oh my god um speaking of the holiday do you have a favorite holiday to celebrate um halloween um halloween is the day before my birthday um mm -hmm. i always got like leftover halloween candy given to me on my birthday um you know got halloween themed gifts um i was almost named wednesday oh so I close know. i know um my uh my parents made a made a deal and uh um um, it didn't work out. If I was born on Halloween, it was going to be Wednesday, but no, sadly. So close. Ugh. <laughs> um, are you a coffee person or a tea person? I am mega a coffee person. I'm trying to become a tea person because coffee is not good for me. <laughs> um, I, you, I mean, you sort of answered this one before, but cats or dogs? Honestly, cats. Um, <gasps> I, I feel like I grew up as like a cat living in a household full of dogs and I didn't understand why I was so stressed out all the time. And then I got cats and I'm like, oh, this, these are my little people. Mm -hmm. Listen, I, I get it seeing as how for the past half hour, you have seen my dog roaming around behind me trying to get comfortable. And he's just like literally pulling up blankets and creating, causing havoc. So I get it. Um, do they're, you, oh, they're extremely do you charming. Oh yeah, he, yeah, he's very charming, but he's also a big baby. He's just mm -hmm. he wants everything his way. Do you have a favorite food? Oh gosh. I mean, I just I love food. Um, <laughs> especially in quarantine, I've really like started cooking a lot for myself and it's it's great. Um God, this is so like horror movie cliche, but I would like a really rare steak. <laughs> That's right in line with your family. It's uh, <laughs> yes. that you've that you've built out here. That's perfect. Yes. Uh, last one of these. If you could have dinner with one person alive or dead, who would you pick? 
I'm going to be a sucker and save my friend Jim. I haven't seen him in like a couple years and I was planning to maybe go see him this fall, but like uh, quarantine messed that up. Yeah, it sure did. Um, okay, last question for you. What do you hope readers take away from What Big Teeth? I mean, I think I really wrote this book for, um, you know, uh, LGBT teens and young adults who are struggling to figure out sort of how they fit into their family structures or what kind of person they want to be when they grow up. Um, I mean, I hope that what people get from it is, I don't know, like both a sense that your family isn't your fault and also that, you know, you have responsibilities to where you came from and to who you want to be now. Um, I feel like there's, uh, there's, there's a lot of like uh, queer discourse that sort of says uh, no to family, which I think can be really good and liberating, but also it doesn't necessarily give people a way forward, like a what now? And so, I don't know, this isn't a complete answer to that, but I hope it's like a little piece of one. I, you know what, I think that's absolutely perfect. Uh, Rose, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been really lovely. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, And this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.